You're listening to a Tiger Hall podcast. For more interviews with many of the world's most inspiring business leaders, uploaded daily, download Tiger Hall from the App Store or Google Play. You're at your desk working and your phone buzzes with a notification. Next thing you know, and 15 minutes has passed and you've been aimlessly swiping your way through social media. You put your phone away and focus once more on your screen. But then a message pops up from a colleague, which naturally you have to respond to right away. Then you open your email. Ah, email. Another 15 minutes gone. If this sounds all too familiar, it's for you that Nir Eyal, our guest for this podcast, wrote his best-selling book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. To quote from the book, In the future, there'll be two kinds of people in the world those who let their attention and lives be controlled and coerced by others, and those who proudly call themselves indistractable. I'd like to be the latter, and I'm sure you would too. So let's speak to Nir and find out how. Okay, Nir, I'd like you to tell me what's wrong with me. Why am I so obsessed with my devices? Nothing is wrong with you. Uh, you're oh, a you. perfectly normal, wonderful person. <laughs> and like uh, many people out there, you find that the age we live in is full of abundance, abundance of options and opportunities and information and interesting things that you can spend your time and attention in your life doing, which is a blessing. We should be so thankful that we have all these opportunities. As uh, Kierkegaard said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Because we have so much freedom, so much choice, we have the world's information at our fingertips. We can connect to people all over the world at any time. We can watch amazing, interesting videos and learn interesting information and connect with people. All these choices, all these options can, some, can sometimes be anxiety producing. And so it's how we deal with that anxiety. It's how we deal with what we call internal triggers. Do we leverage those internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states, and use them as rocket fuel to propel us towards traction? Or do we try and escape that discomfort with unhealthy distraction? So when you feel those internal triggers, do you try and escape them with a drink, with a scroll, with a click? Or do you use that discomfort to help drive you towards what you really want in life? God, anyone who quotes Kierkegaard in a podcast is is all right by me. <laughs> so actually, I've got another philosopher to quote. I was going to bring up um, a quote that you mentioned in your introduction. It's the philosopher Paul Virilio, mm. which I really liked. When you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. So uh, I really like this. Essentially, what you're saying is when companies are designing products to be engaging, what makes them engaging is also what makes them distracting, right? And so we need to learn how to manage this in order to be able to focus on what matters to us. So you've developed four steps to help people do this. Tell us about these four steps. Absolutely. So it starts with identifying what is distraction, really identifying what that term means, because it's one of these words that you think you understand until you actually start researching and writing a book about it and realize you didn't really get it. <laughs> and so when I uh, researched you know, the psychology of distraction and I uh, wanted to really understand the etymology of this word, I found that uh, it didn't mean what I thought it meant. Mm-hmm. That if you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction, they'll tell you the opposite of distraction is focus. But that's not exactly right. 
right. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction, distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, further away from your goals, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this isn't just semantics. This is super important because I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is forethought. That as Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. That we need to stop vilifying these uh, technologies that seem to take us off track. It's not their fault. That's what these technologies are designed to do. We, we, these products are made to be entertaining. Are we going to tell Netflix, hey, Netflix, stop making your shows so fun to watch. Uh, Facebook, stop making your products so engaging. Hey, Apple, your phones are way too user-friendly. That's never going to happen, right? The, we want these products to be engaging. And there's nothing wrong with using them as long as we're using them on our schedule and according to our values, not theirs. So if you plan to use these products according to your schedule and your values, it's traction, nothing wrong with them. Conversely, just because something is a work-related task doesn't mean it can't be a distraction. So uh, in my life, you know, I would come into work, I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, I've got my to-do list. By the way, we can talk about why to-do lists are terrible for your personal productivity. We can get back to that later. Yeah. But I would look at my to-do list and say, okay, I've got that big task that I've been procrastinating on. I'm not going to delay. Here I go. I'm going to get started right away. Let me get going. But first, let me check some email. Right. Mm -hmm. Let me just uh, do some some of those tasks on my to do list that are maybe a little bit lower on the list, uh, just just to get the ball rolling, get some momentum going. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize was that that is the most dangerous, most pernicious form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the easy and urgent work at the expense of the hard and important work that we have to do to move our lives and careers forward. So just because it's email and that feels like a work related task. That is a great example of how something that feels productive is actually a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time and attention. So that's the first step is understand the difference between traction and distraction. Then we have what we call triggers. Triggers are these things that prompt us towards traction or distraction. They come in two types. We have what we call external triggers. These are the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that can lead us towards traction and distraction. But it turns out that's only 10% of the cause of distraction. 10% of the time that we get distracted, is it because of what we tend to blame, right? The things outside of us. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time we get distracted, it's because of these internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, stress, anxiety. This is the cause of 90% of our distractions because time management requires pain management. So once we understand these four steps, we can basically work through them clockwise, starting with mastering the internal triggers. That's step number one. If you don't master your internal triggers, they become your master. Step number two is making time for traction. Step number three is hacking back those external triggers, even though they only account for 10% of our distractions. Lots of things we can do to hack back you know, our devices, our meetings, our kids, all these external distractions can pull us away from what we plan to do. And then finally, the fourth and final step is to prevent distraction with pacts, which is where we build a firewall around ourselves to prevent us from going off track. So those are the four mm. steps. And 
I got to tell you, they have completely changed my life. That since I've adopted these tactics, and I wrote this book for me more than anyone else, I was incredibly distractible. And now I can say I'm indistractable because now I strive to do what I say I'm going to do. I, I, I am as honest with myself as I am with others. When I say I'm going to do something, I do it. I don't get distracted from it. And it has changed my life in every conceivable way. I'm so glad to hear that. It's <laughs> wonderful. So, Pacts, I actually wanted to ask you a question about that. I was chatting to a colleague who read your book a while ago, and the chapter on pacts and identity pacts in particular, she says, I always find myself thinking back to that. It's really impacted her. Oh, fantastic. Can you explain the identity pacts to us in particular and, and why this is so powerful? Sure, sure. So an identity pact comes from the psychology of religion, that we know that when you have a particular moniker that you use to describe yourself, you become more likely to stick with your long-term goals. So when you think about um, uh, a Muslim, uh, a devout Muslim doesn't ask themselves, ooh, should I have that gin and tonic, right? A, a devout Muslim does not drink alcohol. Mm. Uh, a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I wonder if I should have that bacon sandwich for breakfast. No, a vegetarian does not eat meat. It is who they are. So we can create our own monikers, our own what we call identity pacts, so that we uh, we become more likely to align our behavior with our identity. And of course, the identity that I'm proposing that we create is to become indistractable. So becoming indistractable, that, that word, I made it up, right? <laughs> and I can define it any way I want. So indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. It can now, even if you're just listening to the sound of my voice, you don't have to read the book, you can proudly call yourself indistractable. And what is an indistractable person? What does that mean? It doesn't mean you never get distracted, right? It means that you're the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. Now, the difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person is that an indistractable person realizes why they got distracted and does something about it. So Poelo Coelho has a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Mm. So distractible people choose to be distractible because they keep getting distracted by the same things. How many times can we complain about social media distracting us before we say enough? Enough, <laughs> I'm going to do something about it. A distractible person realizes there's only three reasons for every distraction, an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. And so that distraction can get you once, but it's not going to get you again and again. So one of my, if you were to summarize this entire book into one mantra, it's understanding that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That if you plan ahead, if you take steps to prevent getting distracted, there is no distraction you can't overcome. If you leave it to the last minute, you'll lose, right? If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, it's going to be the first thing you reach for in the morning. If you uh, wait till the, the chocolate cake is on the fork and you're on a diet, too late, you're going to eat it. If you're trying to quit smoking, but the cigarette's in your hand, you're going to smoke it. So if you leave these type of decisions to the last minute, you're going to lose. But if you plan ahead, right, that's what an indistractable person does. And there's no distraction we can't overcome. So by calling yourself indistractable, by making that part of your identity, becomes much more likely that you will act accordingly. It sounds a little silly sometimes. It sounds funny, right? To like mm. call yourself this. But it's exactly what we did to overcome a much more addictive and harmful uh, habit that, that about 40% of the U.S. population had when I was a kid, which was smoking. So when I was a kid, I remember in the 1980s, everybody I knew had ashtrays in their living room. Everybody did this. And it sounds crazy. Anybody born in, after the 1980s, it sounds ridiculous. But back then, whether you smoked or not, you were expected to have an ashtray in your living room because when people came over, they just expected to smoke in, in your home. Today, 
that would be unheard of. Nobody would walk into someone's home and just expect to smoke without at least asking, right, yeah, if they're yeah, smokers. Yeah, well, what changed, right? There wasn't a law that said you can't smoke in someone's private residence. What changed was that people like my mother one day threw away the ashtrays. My parents didn't smoke. And they threw away their ashtrays. And when one of her friends came over and just you know, habitually took out a cigarette and expected to smoke in our living room, she said, oh, 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 I'm sorry. We are non-smokers. You see that identity? That moniker, mm-hmm. we are non-smokers. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to smoke, if you'd kindly go outside. <gasps> this was such a crazy thing to do to ask someone, <laughs> right? She was so offended. But of course, now it's become commonplace because we've uh, spread what we call social antibodies. That when people take on these monikers and say, look, this is a better way to live. We can spread these social antibodies to make society better. And so it's going to take some time. But the more people call themselves indistractable, the more people say, hey, you know what? When I go out to lunch with you, I want to be fully present with you. So I'm not going to have my phone out. And I expect you to do the same. Uh, People who make a schedule in advance of how they're going to spend their time. And they're not going to check every ping and ding and ring that they get throughout the day because they are indistractable. And is it any different from someone who has an unusual diet, like a vegetarian or uh, someone who wears religious garb? Yeah, it's a little bit different, but that's how they live according to their values, and we should do the same. So how should we design our physical environments to help us do this? I mean, you mentioned not having a phone by your bed. I'm so guilty of that, by the way. And you must also be sick of people saying, but it's my alarm clock, which is my excuse. (laughs) Um, but yeah, how how should we like workspace? Well, I know what I'm going to get you for the holidays. I'll get you an alarm clock, oh, that's right? Great. <laughs> an old school alarm clock, which works like a charm. <laughs> but how do we set up our physical space? So there's lots yeah. of things we can do. Uh, one, and, and this comes to removing those external triggers. That these external triggers can take many, many forms. Um, so uh, I used to be clinically obese, and uh, no, today, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> I'll show you a picture sometime. Oh, gosh. Yeah, okay. today I'm 44. I'm in the best shape of my life. But yeah, I, I struggled with with food for many years. I still have to watch myself. Uh, for the same exact reasons that uh, eating what I don't want to eat that I know is unhealthy for me is a distraction, just like, you know, spending time online when I want to work on my next book can be a distraction. So you have to shape your physical environment accordingly. So uh, one of the things that that you learn if you're trying to lose weight is to not have those triggers, those external triggers in your outside environment, right? So if you're trying to lose weight, you don't want those Oreos and potato chips, uh, you know, tempting you. You want to put those external triggers away. And the same goes for all of our other distractions, right? So um, making sure that we learn how to use the settings on our phone properly, right? Two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings, which is Madness. Can we honestly say that technology is, quote unquote, addicting us if we haven't taken five minutes to change these notification settings so they're not constantly pinging and dinging us all the time? Mm -hmm. Very easy to do. Of course, things like your outside environment. One of the things that has been incredibly effective for people who use this uh, is, is having a screen sign. A screen sign is is a little thing you put on your computer monitor if you're you know if you're in an office setting mm-hmm. uh, that alerts your colleagues that you are doing focused work because we know surveys find the number one source of distraction for the office worker it's not their phones it's not emails it's other people number mm-hmm. one source of distraction mm-hmm. so so I wanted to do something about this I wanted to make this very easy so in every copy of my book. There is this piece of cardstock. I had to negotiate with my publisher to do this, that you rip out of the book. It's this red piece of cardstock. You fold it into thirds and you put it on your computer monitor and it tells your colleagues, I'm indistractable right now. Please come back later. 
Mm. And so you don't use this all day long, but just for the time period when you're doing focus work, because if you just wear headphones, they don't know if you're listening to a podcast or a mm. video or what, and whether you can be interrupted or not. But if you put up this red sign that looks like a stop sign yeah. and says, hey, I'm indistractable at the moment, please come back later. It's a wonderful way to, to help people know that you can't be distracted and also set this company culture that people should value time to work without distraction. Mm. Okay, so, so that's useful in offices. So many of us are now working from home. Mm. At Tiger Hall, actually, a lot of us have um, added a as an add-on in our calendars, which blocks out time, which mm-hmm. I find really useful. But in terms of my physical environment, oh, just near, I'm just so guilty for all of it. Like my phone buzzes, it's someone asking about this, and then mm-hmm. my email. Oh, I'll just check my email, and then my boyfriend asked me if I want a snack. Of course, I want a snack, and mm. then like it's all these little things yeah. that. That, that are really bad and I need to the, the best time for me to focus is if I have a deadline mm. This is, and I've spoken to a few people about this as well it's when there's the pressure's on that's when all of a sudden the things that would normally distract you melt away right and, and so that is a form of a pact right if you mm. have some kind of consequence but that uh, you don't want to over rely on that that's a last line of defense, right? That's if you if you only use these packs, if you only use deadlines, it's 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 a recipe potentially for burnout. Mm. Uh, so using a pact is the fourth step to becoming indistractable. You want to use those after you've used the other three steps to becoming indistractable first, and only use that as the last line of defense. In all the things that you say get you and distract you, uh, you didn't focus on on the major cause of distraction, right? You talked about your boyfriend, you talked about your phone, you talked Mm. about the pings and dings. You didn't talk about the internal triggers, Mm. which most of us don't like to address. I didn't either. Uh Because 70, (laughs) uh, sorry, 90% of our distractions begin from within. Mm. And we don't notice that. We blame the email. We blame the the, the colleague. We blame the stuff outside ourselves. But studies find 90% begin from within. So if you don't master the internal triggers, they become your masters. So what does that look like? It's about identifying why we got distracted in the first place. Was it that we were fearful that someone might need us even when they probably didn't? Mm. Would it, might it be that we're bored on a big project that we're finding difficult to get through? Is it that we're feeling anxious about what's happening in the world and we need to process it somehow? So starting with the very first step, you can't skip this step, starting with the internal triggers. What is that discomfort that mm. we are trying to escape? And if we don't answer that question, we're always going to find distraction in one thing or another, which is why we have to master those internal triggers first. Because whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, we're going to find something to relieve that anxiety, to relieve that tension, the boredom, the uncertainty, the stress, if we don't address it head on. It sounds serious. It is serious. Do you need therapy? Uh, no, you probably don't need therapy, even though there's nothing wrong with therapy. That We just have to acknowledge that time management is pain management. Money management is pain management. Weight management is pain management. Why? Because we used to believe that our human behaviors are motivated by the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That's not true, right? Jeremy Bentham said this. Sigmund Freud said this. Neurologically speaking, this is false. Everything we do, we do for only one reason, and that is the desire to escape discomfort, the desire to escape discomfort. So that means if you are behaving in a way that you later regret – You have to analyze what is the discomfort you were trying to escape when you did that action. And so putting Band-Aids on it by blaming this thing or that thing that potentially distracted you, the social media, the television, the news, whatever, in our outside environment, 
typically doesn't solve the problem. What we need is a series of uh, of tools, of uh, arrows in our quiver, so to speak, that we can take out and say, hey, when I feel that discomfort, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to try and escape it, mm-hmm. right, with a, a, a shot of booze or clicking on something or <laughs> playing something or just trying to escape it? Or what we find is that high performers, they take that discomfort and they use it as rocket fuel, right? When you when you talk to high performers, as I did in my five years of research, they all feel this discomfort too, right? It's not that they have superhuman amounts of willpower, quite the opposite. We're, we actually discovered now, it looks like more and more that willpower is a myth. It's not, it's not really, it's not real. <laughs> it, but what we find is that people who, who are high performers, they use that discomfort, uh, they leverage it as opposed to trying to escape it. Mm. I always thought that I was slightly addicted to my phone. Even I've just come back from a beach holiday. I was reading a just a tra- trashy novel on the beach, which I was getting very engrossed in. But every so often I'm like, where's my phone? Mm-hmm. Like, I just feel the urge to check it. Yeah. That's bad, right? You're looking at me no, with concern in your face. Look, if it's, if it's what you want to do, mm. do it. You know, I, I think we need to stop moralizing uh, using your phone. <laughs> There's no moralizing. <laughs> Why is using your phone any more morally superior than watching television or reading a book or doing anything else? There's nothing wrong with it if it's what you want to be doing with your time. So if you say to me, hey, I, I want to be on the beach enjoying this time with my boyfriend or reading this book or doing whatever, mm. and I'm not able to, now you said it's a problem. I don't care what you do with your time as long as it's what you want to do with your time. That's the important thing. So if you say to me, hey, why can't I finish this book or why can't I have a conversation with my boyfriend without this constant urge to check? Okay, now it's a problem. Now it's something we should do something about. Okay, it's not that I finished the book um, and it was very good. Um, So you mentioned earlier to-do lists. I'm heartbroken that you say that these are bad because I love to-do lists. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let let me let me clarify. It's not that writing things down on a on a piece of paper or in an app is a bad thing. It's Mm. running your life on a to-do list, which is a bad thing. So if Mm. you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, "What should I be doing with my time right now?" and you look at your to-do list before you look at your calendar, you've made a huge mistake. Because to-do lists have some characteristics that are really detrimental to our personal productivity. Starting with, they don't have any constraints. So a to-do list, you can always add more and more and more to a to-do list. As opposed to a calendar, you have a fixed number of hours in the day, right? I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. You can have infinite amounts of money. Nobody gets more time in the day. We all get 24 hours in a day. So a calendar, unlike a to-do list, forces us to make some decisions, forces us to make trade-offs. And so what happens with people who who use just a to-do list, we, I call the tyranny of the to-do list, and, and I was a to-do list devotee, is that you, know, you get home from work at the end of the day, and you've had, a, you've had a very busy day and you feel like you've run ragged and all you want to do is relax. All you want to do is, you know, hang out with your, your family or, or watch something on TV. But you have this guilt that you still haven't finished some stuff on your to-do list, right? So most people haven't experienced what actual leisure feels like. Because even when all they want to do is just watch a movie and relax or be with their friends, they're constantly thinking, oh, I've got more to do. Whereas an indistractable person who uses the techniques I talk about in the book by scheduling time for it, that now is traction. So if I want to check social media for an hour, hey, that's on my calendar. That's exactly what I should be doing with my my time. Another problem with a to-do list is that because it has no constraints with a to-do list, you never finish everything on your to-do list. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at that to-do list and you still have 100 things left to do, you're looking at that and you're reinforcing that you still haven't done what you said you're going to do, loser. 
And so that reinforces this identity as someone who doesn't live up to their commitments. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, that begins to take a, a, a toll on our perception of ourselves. And that's why you hear people saying these ridiculous things like, I'm no good at time management, right? Or I have a short attention span. No, it's probably that you're just using a bad time management technique like a to-do list. So putting it on a to-do list is fine. It's that that's not the end, that's not the end goal. You have to then put it on your calendar. Right? You have to make time for traction because that's the only way that you will know the difference between traction and distraction. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have lots of white space on your calendar, what did you get distracted from? You didn't plan what you wanted to do, so everything's a distraction. So mm. the only way to know what distraction is is to know what traction is for that particular time and place. I actually love the calendar trick. Uh my boss is a big fan of this. Mm. Possibly she got it in your one of your books, actually. <laughs> she fills out her calendar with every little thing she's supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. And um, on the days that I've done it, I've had a great day. So I should do it every day. <laughs> it, it's one of those things that's incredibly effective. It's, I didn't invent this technique. It's been around for decades. It's, mm. it's been in uh, thousands of peer-reviewed studies. It's the most, the most effective time management technique out there. And many people don't do it because of how well they know it'll work. <laughs> In a weird way, when I plan time to exercise, now I become more likely to exercise. When I plan time to work on that big project, uh, now I'm actually gonna have to do it. So it's really about asking yourself, do you know, are these things important to you? And that's why in order to fill out our time box calendar, we have to start with our values. That's the first and most important step is to ask ourselves, what are my values? What are values to begin with? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So you have to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And you don't need to do this for seven days of the week right away. You can start with, how would the person I want to become spend their weekend? Would I spend time calling my parents? Would I spend time with my friends? Would I spend time praying, meditating, reading? Whatever it is you want to do with your time, if you don't plan that time, somebody else is going to plan it for you. There are too many distractions out there that mm. make money on your time and attention. So if you don't decide in advance how you're going to spend that time, you're going to waste it away, right? It's it's those weekends that we say, "Oh, I've got so much time. I'm going to I'm going to, you know, clean my basement and I'm going to organize my bookshelf and I'm going to do my taxes and all this." And of course, those are the least productive days because we haven't planned them. Mm. Okay, I've just looked down at the list of questions I was going to ask you and actually I'm cringing now because one of my questions was, "Can you give listeners a short to-do list. <laughs> so I'm going to change this. Can you give our listeners a bit of an action plan to start getting the ball rolling if all this is a bit new to them? How can they become indistractable? Yeah, so, so that that's what took me five years was to really research what works and what doesn't and boil down the essential characteristics of an indistractable person. And, and the first characteristic is mastering the internal triggers, that none of the other tips and tricks and life hacks work, right? People want the, the magic bullets. They don't exist because fundamentally, if you don't deal with the discomfort that you are escaping, you're going to find it somewhere. So you cannot skip that step. If you don't know how to deal with boredom, loneliness, anxiety, uh, 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 stress in a healthy way, you're going to find a way to escape it. So that's the first and most important step. Then we have to make time for traction. That's about the whole time boxing technique. And then I teach you in the book exactly how to make sure that you get stakeholders on board. You know, how do you, uh, if you have a schedule, what happens if your boss wants to change that schedule or your kids or your your spouse? What do you do with all that? There's, there's all kinds of 
techniques that we can use for that. There, there are answers. I've heard all the excuses that there possibly are. I, I, there's an answer for all of them. Then we hack back the external triggers. That's when we work on the pings and dings, not only on our devices, that's, that's kindergarten stuff. What about meetings, right? How many of us go to completely distracting, time-wasting meetings that we didn't need to attend? Emails can be a tremendous source of distraction. Our kids, you know, if we're working from home, can be a huge source of distraction. And then finally, the fourth step is to prevent distraction with packs where we make that that firewall around ourselves. But it really has to be done in this order. Uh, So what I encourage people to do is to take simple steps in each one of these four categories. You know, one small thing that they can do, and I I can give you some techniques that people can use right off the bat. For example, let's start with that most important step of uh, mastering the internal triggers. So one technique that I use, this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. I use this almost every single day. Uh, It's called the 10-minute rule. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction in 10 minutes, not for 10 minutes, okay, in 10 minutes. Why is this so effective? Because it saves us from abstinence. Turns out that abstinence most oftentimes backfires. So I know we have, we've all heard this advice, you know, just stop checking your phone or just stop smoking the cigarette or, you know, stop eating that junk food. It's very hard to do, right? To just stop it cold turkey. What you have to do instead, especially for these external triggers that are, are, all, all around, you can't stop eating. You have to eat. You, you, so, so when you're on your diet, uh, you, you can't just you know stop eating completely. When it comes to technology triggers, we, we have to use our phones. I mean, we, this is how we uh, make our living, right? We have to mm. connect with people. So what we want to do is to tell ourselves when we are doing our focused work time, we can give in to that distraction in 10 minutes. So for me, you know, I've been a professional writer now for over a decade. And let me tell you, writing never gets easy. Okay, it's always hard work. And all I want to do when I feel these internal triggers of boredom and and anxiety and stress, is anybody going to like what I'm writing right now? Is it going to be any good? All I want to do is just go Google something real quick or let me just Mm -hmm. check email for a quick sec. What I do instead when I feel that internal trigger is that I tell myself, okay, I'm going to do that in 10 minutes. And so I'll take out my phone. I'll set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll put the phone down. And now my job is to do what's called surf the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that these internal triggers, they're like waves. They crest and then they subside. And so if we can ride those internal triggers like a surfer on a surfboard, we'll realize that they, they will go away if we just give them some space. So for those 10 minutes, I have a choice to make. I can either get back to the task at hand or just sit with that sensation for a few minutes. And I, I give you a few scripts in the book on around what you can do in your head while you're surfing that urge. And what you will find is that nine times out of 10, by the time that timer goes off and, and now you have permission to check the phone or do whatever it is that you would otherwise distract you, that sensation is gone. You no longer feel that internal trigger. So this is just one of dozens of different techniques that we can use to master those internal triggers so they don't become our master. Everything sounds so easy when you say it. <laughs> Suspiciously well, easy. If you, know, if you know what to do and it becomes part of your practice, mm. uh, it, 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 I'm not going to say it's easy, uh, but it becomes natural. It becomes part of your operating procedures. And you also start to learn why the, the conventional advice doesn't work. You know, for example, this abstinence myth, mm. right? That you can just, just don't do it, right? Well, we, what we know is that, that abstinence backfires because it's like pulling on a rubber band. So when you tell somebody or you tell yourself, don't do something, it's like pulling on that rubber band. You pull it tighter, 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 tighter until you can't pull anymore. 
And then when you actually do that behavior, right, when you release the rubber band, does it go back to where it started? No, it ricochets across the room. <laughs> so what we're learning now about the science of habit formation and addiction is that many times it's not the sensation itself that we seek. It's just the relief from not having to tell ourselves not to do something. So when you survey smokers, smokers actually don't enjoy the sensation of smoking. What they actually enjoy, what they're reinforcing is the relief of not having to tell themselves not to smoke anymore, right? What's the evidence for this? If you ask smokers why they like smoking, it's relaxing. That makes no sense. Nicotine is a stimulant. Hmm. What, the reason they find it relaxing is because they free themselves. Oh, I can finally smoke. And so they're reinforcing this exact behavior they're trying not to do by constantly telling themselves, no, 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 okay, no, 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 okay. <laughs> and that's what most people do with all sorts of distractions. God, that's so interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that. Okay, Nir, a final question for you. As you say, you made up this word indistractable. Whenever... I wrote indistractable trying to plan for this podcast. It autocorrects it to indestructible. <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, how annoying has this been for you? <laughs> <laughs> Not so annoying. Uh, I, I actually, uh, my dream is that one day autocorrect will uh, will have this in their database and they won't autocorrect it to the wrong uh, wrong word. But uh, no, I, I I knew that that was part of the idea. <laughs> okay, well, I look forward to, I look forward to that day. Nir, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Tiger Hall podcast. One of the best ways to reinforce things you've learnt is by sharing it. Tell your friends, write a blog post, share on social media. If you do post on social, you may wish to tag Tiger Hall and the Thinkfluencer featured in this podcast to get maximum eyeballs for your post.